0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Sanctus Forum. I'm Michael Stuart Robb, better known as Mike, and this is conspiracy, uh, I wanted to say conspiracy theories, but it's not conspiracy theories, it's conspiracy commentaries, because we're talking about the divine conspiracy uh, and just working through it section by section. And I've got a guest with me today, Aaron Preston, who you probably don't know. Um, That's okay. I'll introduce him in a second. But I did want to say right up front here that this is going to be a little bit different than the normal sort of 10 minute things that I do. You probably have already figured that out. And it'll be a little bit more meandering, we'll just have a conversation and try to go a little bit deeper into just one section. We're just going to stick with these first 11 pages that we've, we've been reading in this book. And um, because of the length, you may just want to shut off these videos um, and go over to the podcast. Uh, so look for the Sanctus Forum on whatever platform you use and uh, just find the the recording here with Aaron Preston and uh, just uh, listen into it I may forget that the cameras are on and they might shut off or who knows what's gonna happen but um, just that to keep in mind now now what we're where we're going here um, give you a little bit of a game plan Um, we're gonna start by just sort of talking about what these what these 11 pages mean in the book. Why did Dallas start the book this way, a book that's about Jesus, about parts of the Bible? Um, Why is he talking about what's happening in the Western world? Second thing we're gonna do is we're gonna talk a bit about ideas, um, the role of ideas in society and in our lives. And the third thing is we're going to start to talk about moral knowledge. So if you're interested mostly in the moral knowledge thing, then just fast forward to that. But it is important because today I have um, Aaron Preston, who's agreed to um, join me, and he um, helped write this book, um, which uh, was Dallas's last philosophical project, "The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge," and uh, his name is right here, second spot. Looks like they went alphabetically, so. Um, it's uh, it's a good book and uh, worth your time if you're um, interested in philosophy and ethics and all of that. Uh, Dallas is actually a, a good philosophical writer, which is not something you can always say about modern philosophers. But uh, Aaron helped write that book. He was, um, and this is the reason why I really wanted to invite him for this here. He was a a student of Dallas as of Dallas at USC in his uh, undergrad and then in his grad school and did his PhD under Dallas um, on the history of analytic philosophy, which sounds riveting if you're not in studying philosophy, but for those who uh, are in philosophy, it's a uh, really important work that he did there. And um, yeah, he just uh, kept up with uh, Dallas and um, knows uh, Dallas's work and philosophy well, and for that reason, um, I wanted to have him on and to uh, share a little bit more insight about what's happening in these initial pages. So, um, Aaron, um, glad you could be here. Welcome. Thank you very much.
1: I'm, I'm glad to be here myself.
0: Um, so uh, I've uh, let people know a little bit about who you are and that you uh, knew Dallas personally. And um, is there is there something here since we've got you here that uh, that would give us some insight into who Dallas was as a person? Do you, something you remember from your time being with him?
1: sure yeah, i mean dallas uh was was the embodiment of of everything he wrote about um, he uh had been practicing the disciplines of, of spiritual formation uh, that he writes about in his works and, and conforming himself to Christ for decades uh, by the time I met him in the early 1990s. And he immediately stood out to me as being just one of the most um, remarkable people I've ever met. Um, the combination of intellect and character uh, the Dallas possessed is something I've never seen in anyone else. I mean, there may be a few other people uh, that I've known personally who who match uh, him in terms of intellect. Um, there may be a few people I've known who who um, match him in terms of character, uh, but in terms of the combination, hmm. uh, it's just absolutely unique. And um, and and each each one of those dimensions sort of enhanced the other. So. It, uh, the The character was amplified by the intellect, and the intellect was amplified by the character, and it it really turned him into the most remarkable person I've ever known. And consequently, um, I and that's you, know, you mentioned earlier that I that I did both my undergrad and my grad studies at USC, and and Dallas is the reason why. I met him when I took my first philosophy class, and he got me hooked. And I just knew I had to I had to get more Dallas, as mm-hmm. as much Dallas as possible. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's why that's why I stayed there and, and went back there
0: yeah I think I think um, Dallas Willard is the kind of person where if you get if he hooks you just a little bit then the only way you're ever going to get out of that is by going deeper in and really figuring out what makes him think and act as he does yeah um, and there's there's a lot of depth there um yeah he's uh there's i've been studying him for many years now and there's always more more to find all that to say i'm not i'm not out yet i'm 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 able to sort of uh yeah i've i read the things now i find that dallas the Dallas Red and then inspired him. And I think that that uh, helps me.
1: Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not out of Dallas either. Um, you know, I continue to uh, learn more from him. Uh, most of his works um, repay rereading. Hmm. You see new things in them that you didn't see. This is true of his academic work as well as yeah. his popular work. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, um, reading the things he read and that inspired him. I, uh, there's, a, there, that's a list so long. Most people. <laughs> Would not be able to make it through in a in a lifetime, and I I know I never will. Yeah. I
0: mean,
1: yeah. You you probably know he had a an entire house gutted to hold his library, um, and I <laughs> I I saw that that library, and
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> let me tell you, that's the point where I gave up hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw the library too, um, and I I'll I'll actually put a picture on the screen here if you're watching. Now this is where watching actually is advantageous but I'll, I took a couple pictures there and you can get a small glimpse of what this this house which only housed books was like. <laughs> um, all right the first thing I want to talk with you about Aaron is um, just these first 11 pages uh, the overarching title is Life in the Dark and Dallas, He's writing these in 1997, so right before the book is published, most of the chapters are already done, and he inserts this bit into the front of it. And I think this section shocks a lot of people when they get to it, because they weren't expecting this. Perhaps, maybe they were hoping for it, but they weren't maybe expecting that Dallas would start here. So what what do you think? What do you think he's doing here? Why? why in a book about Jesus, about the gospel, kind of a religious book, one that the publisher is calling Christian spirituality, why this kind of thing? What do you think he's up to?
1: Well, uh, I think you, you have to start with an understanding that um, you know, Dallas did not see religion as something to be compartmentalized in you know one little section of a, of a person's life, he didn't see it as um, something that was only a matter of of private commitment. Uh, he saw it as um, sort of God's organic gesture to humanity that was supposed to be all encompassing and all embracing. Uh, he believes that the the Christian um, religious and ethical framework is is supposed to be a foundation for human life hmm. generally. Hmm. And that means both individual human life and corporate human life. He thought that what Jesus was trying to teach us was how to live life in a way that could shape all the dimensions of human life. Hmm. and And so he starts off with this story about the pilot flying upside down and and crashing not knowing which way is up or which way is down and using that as an illustration of contemporary western society of having no moral compass really Mm -hmm. no we've lost our moral bearings we don't know how to properly direct and pilot our lives uh, both individually and corporately or as a society and And Jesus then is going to be presented as the book unfolds as the person who is uniquely uh capable of of resetting our instruments as it were hmm. uh, of of putting us on the right sort of moral bearing uh for for individual and and corporate life so so that's why he opens the book the way he does with this commentary on. know, where Western society is right now and sort of being morally stumbling around in the darkness. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Um, I, this is, this is a mode of Dallas's writing and thinking, which I don't think a lot of people know about. So some of the philosophy can be rather technical. Um, He's diving deep into issues of metaphysics, uh, epistemology. Um, And then you've got the sort of the Dallas with the Bible in his hand kind of teaching um, people who want to know about the Bible, about Jesus. And then there's this sort of, there are a few things out there where he's doing kind of social commentary. And a lot um, a lot of it had to do with the university, place of the university in human life. There's this article, I'm sure you've read it, on the unhinging of the American mind, where he's talking about Derrida. You know it, yeah?
1: Yes, I have read that. I, I I can't claim that I can call specific themes to mind, but
0: <laughs> don't worry. I mean that's that's something that you can read of his in that in this sort of genre. Um, and he would he he would often teach he actually was invited to uh, mostly Christian universities um and and meetings of university professors or presidents, and talking about the situation of the university in American culture. And um and I think it's something that maybe bears a little at the that uh that I wish was more well known about him. Cause it is some of the it is some really good observations. Uh yeah.
1: Yeah, it's an important theme for Dallas and you know the book you held up earlier, The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge uh, the first chapter of that book does contain an extended discussion of precisely that set of issues. Yeah,
0: uh, we were talking before about how in in Germany you have you still have religious education as a requirement in schools all the way through high school, secondary education, and and if you're a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you get a Roman Catholic. Um, Religious education And if you're part of the Protestant church You get a Protestant one And if you're a part of neither of them Then they call your course of studies Ethics Um, And so there's I think you probably Could find an ethics course in a high school In in America It would certainly be optional Um, And Yeah, you wouldn't find a religious education course, certainly nothing that was required. Um, but there's a, there's a bit of a sense here that we, we kind of need ethics. We kind of, we need, that's at least the the basic bit that you could say about these courses is the sense of there's, there's a need to talk about this stuff.
1: Well, that's very promising. It sounds like, uh, like, in your neck of the woods, uh, folks are, are maybe a step ahead of where we are here in, in the U.S. right now.
0: I, yeah, I can't, I don't know. <laughs> I think obviously knowledge is always going to be better than ignorance. And so, um, yeah, we, they're, they're doing something. Let's, let's keep it That's there. Good. Um, so I think that's one thing when you read these, these first pages here in this book, um, that may not sound, that may be a little strange if you're reading it as a, you know, coming from a European context or as you're, if you're reading it and perhaps a bit younger. So Aaron and I are kind of Gen X. I'm probably the baby of uh, Gen X, generation and you know Pearl Jam was on the radio when we were young um, so but then kind of below us there is a little bit different mentality and uh, at least in the United States and and here too to some degree but well let's let's save that for for later then good deal Sure. Um, let's, let's talk about ideas now. Um, that's kind of floating in the background of this, this section, and I want to read you something to begin with, which Dallas has to say about ideas, and then we can use that as a basis to talk about this here. This is out of Renovation of the Heart, one of his other books. Um, and it's on a, out of a chapter on the mind and he's going to say that, you know, if you want to change who you are, one of the things you need to work on is your mind. And he's going to say that, um, well here, I'll, I'll start reading a little bit earlier where he says the realm of thought involves four main factors. These are ideas, images, information, and our ability to think. The ability to think he's he means reason really is what he means there Aaron you know that um, but I find very interesting here what he writes about ideas and so I'll read just a paragraph and if you get this out yourself you can read a little bit more and uh, have a little bit more context for it but ready Aaron here sure. <laughs> okay ideas are very general models of or assumptions about reality. They are patterns of interpretation, historically developed and socially shared. They sometimes are involved with beliefs, but are much more than belief and do not depend upon it. They are ways of thinking about and interpreting things. They are so pervasive and essential to how we think about and how we approach life that we often do not even know they are there or understand when and how they are at work. Our idea system is a cultural artifact, growing up with us from earliest childhood out of the teachings, expectations, and observable behaviors of family and community. Yeah, then he goes on to say some other really interesting things, such as, for example, that people who think refer to themselves as practical and men of action, Um, are those who are often most in the grip of ideas, right? So Aaron, you're a, uh, philosopher, not too many people earn their money as a philosopher. So you're working with ideas all the time. True. And then not, Uh, and then universities too are kind of idea factories, churning out things, helping students, grapple with ideas.
1: That's the, uh, that, that's the thought, at least. That's what we try to do.
0: I think one of the ways of interpreting human life in our day that's gained a bit more attraction uh, is this idea that we're products of sort of a social context. So right. social context or, or family, that kind of the psychological mm-hmm. approach, you know, tell me about the relationship mm-hmm. to your father and I'll tell you about you. Um, rather than, well, maybe these people who act this certain way are consuming a certain type of ideas Mm -hmm. versus this other group who actually are working on a different set of ideas.
1: Sure. Okay, so um, a couple of different points I want to (laughs) make related to all of that. So uh, probably it would be useful if we started... By thinking about the relationship between ideas, beliefs, and actions. Okay. So one of the, one of the things that Dallas says in the passage you read is that ideas are not beliefs, and and so this is correct, right? So ideas are just ways of thinking about things. Um, you can think about different possibilities of um, you know the way the way things might be, the Mm -hmm. way different parts of the world might be. You can entertain ideas without being committed to any one of them. Right. Right? Belief, what distinguishes a mere idea from a belief is, is that belief is an attitude of commitment that we have to an idea when we accept an idea as a represent as a true representation of the way reality is, that's when we believe it,
0: when and we're and, ready to to, and, to act.
1: And, and and that's right. And and so and and that's why belief brings along with it a readiness to act as if some idea, the one you're believing in, yeah. was true.
0: Yeah. This is it. Sorry, sorry, can I insert here? Um, That reminds me of a distinction Dallas made in... um, So a lot of folks believe that human beings are no more than just a pile of molecules with some electrical current running through them. But they don't... um, they don't treat human beings in that respect. They don't treat their family members like that. Um, And so it's Dallas called attention to the fact that they don't, their beliefs are actually different than the ideas that govern their understanding of, of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of in that case, be thankful that these people aren't sort of living up to their ideas.
1: Right. Right. So yeah, Dallas would would often characterize belief as just a matter of being ready to act as if some set of ideas were true. Right. Um, and you know, I, I I myself I think there's a little more to belief than that. I think there's this idea of acceptance or assent or commitment. Okay. I mean I think that's that's psychologically prior. And I don't think Dallas would have denied that, but he was in his in his own teachings far more interested in the practical import of beliefs. So one of the things you were sort of asking about there with regard to the passage is why are beliefs important or so why are ideas important yep. and and I think that the the most straightforward answer that can be given here from a Willardian perspective is that, ideas can show up as the content of beliefs, and when they do, they guide our actions, both as individuals and as communities of people. When we share the same beliefs, then to an extent, and and I suppose you might say, to the exact extent that we actually share beliefs, we are also prepared to act in the same ways.
0: Yeah yeah is it it's it's isn't it like it shows it shows human limitation in the in the respect that we can't we have to guide our life based upon the ideas that are available to us at this present moment that's right so if we haven't read that self-help book that would really turn our life around then we aren't helped
1: <laughs> right i mean it's it's uh i don't know like struggling with a math problem maybe right mm-hmm. i mean if you're if you're trying to find the solution to a math problem but you're not able to bring the right ideas to bear yeah. on the problem then you're you're not going to solve it yeah And, um, you know, you've got to get the right idea in mind and then, you know, that idea will provide a template for action.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about this, um, bit that he says here. I think it's also in this, um, that, um, even though they are pervasive and essential to how we think about and approach life we often do not even know they are there or understand when and how they're at work. So some of the ideas at the beginning of Divine Conspiracy, I mean these sort of big ideas he's talking about, he's trying to say those are things that are so deep now in American or perhaps Western society that You don't have to. People don't really think about them, or they don't. They certainly aren't defending them, or they have to, you know, work on it constantly to sort of keep this idea before them.
1: Right. So, you know, Dallas. um, I think it's worth stating that the Dallas did think that it was possible uh, for individuals to. To transcend the sets of ideas yeah. that uh, they they inherited from culture, um, and to penetrate through to reality and truth yeah. on their own. However, he thought that took a lot of discipline, hmm. uh, and 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 you know you had to you had to have a certain kind of character um, and a certain kind of commitment in order to pull that off, and, and of course. Um, that's not possible until you reach a certain level of maturity or development as a, as a human being. And, and so the default position for human knowledge acquisition is, is to operate on the basis of authority. You Mm -hmm. inherit your, your ways of thinking, your ideas, and, you know, your, your accepted ideas. And so your beliefs, you inherit them from the authorities in your life, including parents, other members of your community who are regarded as authoritative uh, political leaders sometimes, teachers, professors, so on and so forth. Um, And we generally accept the ideas that are handed down to us without scrutinizing them in the way that a philosopher might. and. We simply start to employ the ideas as if they were accurate or true, and we we from from the point we start doing that, we just take it for granted, and they operate as assumptions that that have usually never been examined
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. in
1: any sort of careful
0: way so it's it's interesting you're working at, at a university, and typically. University education is a time when professors and kind of that Gandalf sort of style help students look at the authority structures, things that, you know, they came into the university with and say, well, is this accurate? Is this in line with what humanity has learned over the years? Um, but Dallas in these pages is critiquing the university. Uh, I guess in a sense for not doing their job or perhaps for kind of undermining the students, uh, to such a degree that they walk out and don't really know what to think.
1: Yes. Um yeah, I th- there's a lot I could say about that. I don't know how how deep you want me to go in into these
0: waters. I think I think I want to think just keep thinking about how important it is for us as young people. You know, you and I aren't exactly young people anymore, but when we're young, we're thinking about the world, obviously we're Thinking about you know what we grew up with and and they're different voices. There are professors, if mm-hmm. we're at university, there are people we're reading, there are the, uh, artists, and and actually interestingly Dallas said that artists are almost the only group that young people don't question at all. Mm-hmm. Who who they don't approach skeptically. Professors mm-hmm. are all kind of skeptically sort of like okay this guy does have something to say to me but i need to kind of be careful yeah um but uh, these these what we get during that period of our life is very important for our intellectual formation you don't usually see 50 year olds kind of rethinking their
1: Right. It, it takes a lot to uh, shake someone up to that point where they'll they'll rethink things from the foundations. Yeah. Once once those foundations have been laid and, and and so that that is a very critical period in life. And of course, that's often right about the time when when young people are going to the universities. Yeah. And, you know, Dallas's critique of the university, uh, there, there's a sort of vision for education. In, in the West, that goes all the way back to Plato. Yep. And, and it has to do with the rational pursuit of knowledge of the good uh, with, the, with the anticipation that, that once that knowledge is, is achieved, you'll put it into practice. So this is, you might say, a quest for moral knowledge. And the idea is we want to know how to live our lives the right way both as individuals and as a society. And this is what, say, Plato's Republic, for example, is all about. Mm -hmm. And um, that has been the guiding vision of higher education for most of Western history. Uh, But in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, for a variety of reasons, um, the universities, kind of gave up on the idea of moral knowledge uh, that could be taught yeah. with the same kind of authority
0: yeah.
1: uh, that, say, mathematics or yeah. biology could be taught. Uh, and, and now we're in a situation where um, we've been living with that abandonment of the, of, moral, of the idea of moral knowledge for so long that uh, it seems normal. Hmm. It seems like the like the normal state of affairs, and uh, folks who are confident about moral opinions are usually taken to be uh, dogmatists or of one form or another. And frankly, often they are. Hmm. But but the idea here is that um, the the sort of roots of Western civilization uh, involve th- the the hope and the belief that something more than dogmatism is possible, that you could actually have moral knowledge.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's, let's use that as a stepping grounds to our third topic here. You've already mentioned sure. it here about moral knowledge. Um, and so in, this, in these chapters, um, yeah, sorry, in these pages, Um, that's one of the sort of ideas that he's working with. Um, Why don't you give me a brief summary of what he was thinking there, all knowledge disappeared, and then maybe a little bit about, you know, this was written in 1997. We're recording this in 2021. Maybe what's, What's changed since then?
1: Yeah, so the disappearance of moral knowledge, which is the title of the book you held up right, earlier. That's but, this one here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, but, but it's the, the core idea is, is already present here in the divine conspiracy, yeah. right? So these, these early pages of the book are essentially about the same phenomenon that that, that entire book is about. Um, the disappearance of moral knowledge in, in Dallas's mind um, was a cultural phenomenon or a social phenomenon. It was uh, a matter of the governing institutions and authorities of Western culture essentially losing faith in the idea of the very possibility of moral knowledge just as I was describing a few moments ago with regard to the university. But from the university, this loss of faith, you might say, Mm -hmm. in the possibility of moral knowledge uh, spread to other institutions, government, the professions, and, and so on. And the resulting cultural situation is one in which a person who wanted to know how to live their life the right way, would not easily be able to find um answers that were were widely regarded as being accurate answers yeah uh, the same way like oh go ahead yeah
0: let's try to so if you wanted to fix your car mm-hmm. you could find the knowledge out there to fix it really yeah. it doesn't matter what car you have we've We've got that. You, it's probably not that difficult to find. So what Dallas is saying here is if you want to be a good person and you want that to be based on the way things really are, Mm -hmm. then socially and at the university level, nobody can really help you.
1: That's right. If you want to be a good mechanic, we've got the knowledge for you. Right. We, we, we know where to go to get that knowledge, um, you know, from from official training programs to yeah. YouTube videos. Yeah. Uh, knowledge is in abundance. Yeah. But if you want to know how to be a good person, if you want to know how to live your life the right way, you're not going to find, I mean, there may be lots of people out there Sharing their views, but these are all going to be regarded as subjective opinions, yeah and there's there's not going to be anything that's really regarded as uh, authoritative knowledge right where you know just like there's a right and a wrong way to repair an engine, there's a right and a wrong way to approach the moral life. That's not how we think about it anymore yeah but that's that's how we thought about it. Uh, it's, prior to the 20th century. It's
0: interesting, especially for Americans and perhaps, well, each European country could be a little bit different here, but we sort of are so used to there not being any uh, authoritative ethical teaching in our cultures that we forget that 100, 120 years ago, there was that People just assume, just as we assume, yeah, well, we can figure out how to fix this car. People mm-hmm. assumed, yeah, we can figure out how to fix this moral life that I have.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Because there are people that are, are authorities on this uh, subject.
1: Right. right. And, you know, that's not to say that it um, uh, that, that there weren't disagreements. Uh, right that's not to say that there weren't puzzles sometimes, but you know you've you've got disagreements and puzzles uh, about how to interpret quantum mechanics, and that that doesn't make us think there isn't a true answer to be found yeah so yeah right you know um right but but for some reason our our cultural attitude toward the possibility of moral knowledge has shifted and and that's what Dallas is referring to right uh when he talks about the disappearance of moral knowledge now go ahead
0: um. No, maybe you were going to go there, but I, um, in preparation for this talk, you said that, um, that you and even Dallas himself uh, at the end of his life was having some difficulty convincing students. So he's teaching, at the end of his life, he's teaching millennials. He taught like all generations. He taught, he taught the baby boomers of the sixties, and he taught Gen X, and he taught uh, millennials. And um, but the millennials then in his classes, and and you you teach millennials now, and um, we're having some difficulty grasping the kind of the edge of the problem.
1: That that's right, and and I think that has to do with a certain uh, cultural changes that have occurred uh, in conjunction with these general, generational changes. So, so let me just lay out, um, a few big things that happened in the 20th century that really provided the, the background to what Dallas took himself to be responding to okay. in terms of the disappearance of moral knowledge. And then I'll say a little bit about what changed, um, as we, as we, um, sort of shifted from, you know, the, uh, the, the, the 1990s to the, the early 2000s right. um, and, and that I think caused some of this difficulty in understanding uh, the problem that Dallas was trying to uh, identify and articulate. So going back to the 1930s, um, there was a, there was a kind of a sea change at that point in the way uh, American universities at the very least um, approached the idea of moral knowledge. Mm -hmm. Until the end of the 1800s, um, American universities basically accepted the idea that there was moral knowledge uh, and that it could be communicated and taught, and they organized their uh, curricula around this idea Mm -hmm. and, and made moral education the sort of overarching goal of a university education, Mm -hmm. Uh, but by the time we get to the 1930s, um, this had all changed and a, a lot of this has to do with the rise of the sciences and not only the theoretical challenges that some of the findings of some of the sciences posed to traditional religious and moral views, but also practically, I mean, many of these... Uh, new scientific disciplines, uh, obviously, uh, had or uh, held within within their knowledge the possibility of great practical benefits to human beings. I mean, mm-hmm. the, uh, the 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 speed at which we've developed um, vaccines for COVID, for example, over the last year. I mean, prior to the advent of modern science, uh, this would not have been possible, and we would have been suffering for generations, possibly with. Bouts of COVID, so um, people wanted the practical benefits of the sciences in the form of, you know, medicines and cures of various sorts, uh, as well as useful technologies of various sorts. And so there was a kind of a market demand placed on the university to provide more scientifically trained people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the question became, well, how do you make room for that in the curriculum, and uh, what? ended up happening after a lot of uh, attempts to um, sort of do everything uh, is that the aim of moral education got dropped by the wayside Hmm. and scientific training took over. Uh, And by the 1930s, um, the emerging scientific worldview had articulated itself in the form of what came to be known as the fact-value distinction.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. The the idea that um, the only kinds of facts there are, are empirical, scientifically discoverable facts. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And uh, values are just subjective feelings. Values aren't facts. And and they're not facts at all. And therefore, there's nothing in the realm of value to be known Mm -hmm. or to be taught. Yeah. And, and this, um, this took hold in the universities uh, and had various sorts of manifestations. There's a whole school of thought in philosophy itself that um, developed around this idea. Uh, but the more important manifestation of this idea was the curricular manifestation, yeah. where the old ideal of, of moral education which had already been demoted from the, the overarching sort of central aim of, mm-hmm. of higher education, um, had been shuffled off to the periphery in the form of general education programs.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but, but from there, it got further relegated to um, arts and humanities disciplines mm-hmm. that conceived of themselves as providing an emotionally-based moral education. Yeah, the way to the way to teach people the difference between right and wrong was to expose them to great works of art and literature, uh, where they might find welling up within themselves mm. the appropriate kinds of emotions yeah. of either approval or disapproval, mm-hmm. um, that would fund the moral life. Yeah, yeah, and and this emotivist approach to moral education persisted for many decades
0: yeah
1: and um ultimately uh it it failed terribly uh, because Mm. while it's true that emotions probably do play a really important role in human moral psychology and you know plato was perfectly aware of this
0: Mm -hmm. Um, that's interesting you bring up plato i mean Plato's got this very classic psychology of, you know, moving from the belly to the chest to the head and the head is for him reason, rationality, um, and then your desires and your, your sense of honor and sense of anger were sort of lower down, um, ideally.
1: Right. Well, you know, Plato does include all of this in the soul. Uh, their bodily manifestations right. show up in in different locations. But at the end of the day, um, you know, logos or reason, uh, thumos or you know, it's difficult to translate this term. It's literally heart, but uh, often gets translated spirit or emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own view is that it's a lot like what we think of as conscience. Or, you know, the conscience hmm. is a set of moral emotions. Mm-hmm. The fund, the fundamental moral emotion for Plato, I think, is um, uh, a sort of righteous indignation, yeah. a kind of anger, zeal, kind of anger. Yeah, uh, yeah, but but one that that for him almost shows up as a kind of anger. Yeah. I think at, yeah. at, at wrongdoing. Right. But right. but there's more there's more to Thumos than that. Right. And then you've got Epithumia, the right. the appetites, lusts, the appetites, desires. Yeah. So. Yeah, and these are all ultimately parts of the soul for Plato, and and the idea was they need to be properly organized, and and integrated with one another in a hierarchical fashion, where you know reason is in charge of the rest. Right. Uh, and what happens in the in the um, 20th century is uh, basically we are told that reason has no role in the moral life. Right. Um, only the emotions do right and so now there's no there's nothing in you uh that can govern emotion on the basis of factual
0: connection Mm -hmm. with reality yeah
1: and uh and so there are in fact no standards right you just have what you ought to feel
0: you just have greater and lesser emotions or feelings toward Mm -hmm. something and that's
1: yeah and I mean, this Bert- Bertrand Russell, who is often regarded as uh, the greatest English language philosopher of the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, was was an early adopter of this emotivist perspective. Yeah, yeah. And you know, in the, in the mid 1930s, um, he he started um, sort of advocating for this emotivist view uh, very strongly, uh, saying there there's really nothing more to um, moral judgment than something like uh, aesthetic taste. Uh, there's nothing more to declaring something good or bad than saying I like oysters mm. or I don't like oysters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but then fast forward uh, into the uh, 1940s and 50s and 60s, uh, basically you know, po- post-World War II, post-Holocaust, right. and, and Russell has come to see the weakness of this view and, and okay. you know, he actually, he says, I, even though I, I cannot I cannot accept a more robust moral theory uh, than this emotivist view, uh, it seems to me like there must be something more to say about the wrongness of cruelty than just that I don't like it. Um, so, you know, this is the weakness of the emotivist view. What, what do you do when a, when a person's emotions are such that they want to harm other people, you know, when they want to be cruel Mm. to other people, um, to say that's bad, that's wrong is just to say, I don't like what you're doing, but that doesn't provide a reason for them not to like what they're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, this is the problem. And as, as things developed in the universities, this sort of, you know, idealistic, um, aesthetic-based approach to moral education.
0: You know, I should add, I mean, this was taken very seriously. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is not like something that a couple of crackpot professors thought up. Um, This was was thought to be, you know, to be very helpful for humanity to learn this about itself. Right, right.
1: And uh, you know, I mean, uh, it, it manifests in, in many different ways. Freudian psychology is, for example, another mm-hmm. another way this manifested. Um, you know, it's your it's your fundamental drives that are that are the real you. Yeah. Uh, it's the and it's bound up with ideals about authenticity. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, it, uh, it let you know be true to your emotions, be true mm-hmm. to your feelings, and and that's the real you. That's the true you. And somehow, if you let yourself be that person, you will be a good person. Yeah. And you know, well, it kind of depends on what kinds of emotions you have. And <laughs> I think you know, uh, even the best of us have to admit that that sometimes, if you know, there are certain emotion uh, emotional states we find ourselves in where, if we if we express them with authenticity, uh, it probably would be right to put us in jail afterward.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? So,
1: I mean. You know, not, not all emotions are are good in that way. They need regulation. Plato knew that and pretty much every major thinker in the, in the Western tradition knew that uh, yeah. up until we got to the 20th century. Yeah. So, so in any case, you've got this, this transition in the university curriculum toward this emotivist view. Moral education is handed over to uh, the arts and the humanities. Um, before long, You've got um, the the arts and the humanities, and and some of the social sciences, frankly as well, um, being infiltrated with certain forms of philosophical thought uh, that you know come from from mainly twentieth-century uh, European thinkers.
0: Um, Can you name that in case somebody wants to look it up?
1: Sure. So so you know you've got um, just quickly. Yeah, you've got the critical theorists, um, you know, the Frankfurt School and and their and their um, sort of uh, uh, later generations of, of thinkers uh, coming out of that tradition. You've got um, you know the kinds of thinkers that um, sometimes get labeled postmodern, mm-hmm. uh, Derrida, yeah. uh,
0: poststructuralist one, uh,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, and and uh, Foucault, uh, mm-hmm. a, a big one, right, mm-hmm. uh, and these folks uh, tend to be focused on um, what they perceive to be a certain sort of moral mission, uh, Mm a mission of liberation, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, liberation from what? Well, liberation, essentially, I mean, this is a, at the heart of all this is a sort of relativistic view that sees morality as a cultural construct, Yeah. Which then gets, uh, I'm kind of, uh, to a certain extent, aligns with uh, that passage you were reading from from Dallas from earlier, right? Mm -hmm. We inherit our ideas, and you know there is truth to that. Um, But but these folks uh, tended to um, reject any sort of rational ability that would allow us to um, critique uh, our our inherited ideas in ways that would allow us to replace them with genuinely true ideas. It was right. all cultural construction, right. one way or another, and uh, truth was either inaccessible or perhaps non-existent, yeah. um, in, at least in these yeah. areas. So, so the idea then is that this, this wave of relativistic thinking uh, begins to infiltrate the university through the arts and the humanities, who had been entrusted with moral education, mm-hmm. and before long you end up with the situation that, um, say, Alan Bloom is is discussing in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, back in the mid 1980s, right. where he's talking about how the undergraduate population in the United States, and specifically his institution. Um, seem to uh, that th- you said there is one thing you can count on every undergraduate believing when they come to college, and that is there is no moral truth. It's all relative hmm. right and And this is really the the milieu in which Dallas started to worry over the disappearance of moral knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. So this idea that, well, no one's got any moral knowledge. It's all just subjective opinion. Uh, You can't really judge others. Um, Everyone has their own views and you just sort of adopt a live and let live perspective because there's no rational basis on which to criticize anybody else. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: And and so there you go.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, you know, this is, this is the, Cultural result uh, at a more fine-grained level of the disappearance of moral knowledge from our cultural institutions back in the earlier part of the 20th century, and and this is really I think what Dallas had most in mind when yeah. he was when he was talking about the disappearance of moral knowledge, but he did note. Um, in, in the book, The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge, and in some of his other writings, that there was also this tendency, because, because the moral domain really is a part of human life, uh, it really is a part of reality, and it will not go away, and we need to attend to it somehow. He observed that um, morality, in a more traditional sense, tended to sneak back in. Um, in the form of dogmatically held views that asserted themselves in the form of of what's sometimes called political correctness. Okay. So the idea here is that there there would be, we we wouldn't, we're not willing to put our moral beliefs on the table and argue for them uh, as possible items of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, We don't believe that's possible at all, but because we need to have some framework of right and wrong in order to well, we need guide to, human life. We need to get up
0: in the morning and do something
1: <laughs> right and and we need to find ways of cooperating with one another when we're at work, right? Yeah. And and so yeah. uh, and so there will be systems of right and wrong that are enforced in our public dealings with one another. The question is going to be are those going to be enforced as items of knowledge? or are they going to be enforced as sort of dogmatic uh, assumptions um, that are if if you disagree with them or want to question them then you will simply be mobbed uh, with yeah. disapproval rather yeah. than people saying well no, no, let's 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 think about this and see yeah. who's in the right right so
0: There are but there are different I mean you mentioned political correctness as one one route that this takes but mm-hmm. there are different kinds of mobs are there right. not who sure. will in a sense use whatever power or authority they have to try to yeah uh convince or even yeah. if they can't convince to at least direct public policy right. in their direction right
1: to and cajole, yeah. So um, yes, uh, and, and now, now talking a little bit about the change that's happened, I think that the, the reason Dallas in his last year or so of teaching was having difficulty communicating the problem of the disappearance of moral knowledge in a, in a convincing way is that these more dogmatic ways hmm. of approaching moral matters um, grew in popularity Hmm. um, beginning around the turn of the millennium, let's say, Um, as we leave the the 1900s behind and move on to the 2000s, um, you see an increasing uh, readiness on the part of especially younger people Mm -hmm. to act as if they were in possession of moral knowledge and assert their views with the kind of authority and and um, and self assurance yeah. that would be um, legitimate only if they were genuine items of moral yeah. knowledge. And, this is and, to
0: insert here. This is it's. This is different from when you and I were in high school or in true. university, where you had people who you know would kind of spend their life on drugs. And then you had people who wanted to be, you know, valedictorian or they wanted to do well. They wanted to volunteer their time. And you kind of had to look at both of those as just like, well, they're just living their lives. Mm-hmm. And kind of just you could try to be friends with them. But that was sort of the expectation. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, but it's but it's 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 not like that what it was.
1: Well, right, right. So, I mean, you, you might say that, that you and I grew up uh, in an ethos of, of um, sort of highly tolerant relativism, right? Where yeah. The idea was, you know, if there was a, a sort of presupposed ethic underneath it all, it was an ethic of tolerance. Yeah. Um, but what you see in, in um, more recent generations of college students um, Beginning sometime in the in the two thousands, it seems to me, is um, a willingness to be intolerant
0: yeah.
1: toward certain sets of views, certain kinds of actions. Um, many of them speech acts or mm-hmm. speech actions, or just actions of speech, I should mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. not speech acts in the technical philosophical sense, but. Um, and I mean, the, the most obvious manifestation of this, uh, to my mind, is the phenomenon of, of uh, what we sometimes call wokeism uh, here in the United States. And uh, along with that is the phenomenon of cancel culture, okay. where you know, there, there's a certain set of moral sensibilities, and and this is right. usually associated with uh, you know far left progressive moral sensibilities and the idea is um we are in possession of moral knowledge we know what's right and what's wrong mm-hmm. and we are not going to stand for what we believe to be wrong yep. um, and so you know if you say the wrong thing do the wrong thing we will form a uh a mob you know online or or however else yeah. and uh and we will attack you yeah. and
0: you won't. You wouldn't call it. You'd never call it a mob. But you know, you'd,
1: yeah, you. would Yeah. I mean the, the term the term witch hunt has been used uh, to describe these kinds of uh, these kinds of events. Um, yeah. The term twi- Twitter, mob, Twitter uh, ha- mob has been yeah. used for yeah. these kinds of things. Uh, but you know, cancel culture. Uh, but you know, this. It's important to see that this is something that happens both on the left and the right, um, the phenomenon,
0: which is is interesting because it's, it's kind of a democratic democratic process, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. you're just, you're getting voters, (laughs) right,
1: right. For for a particular issue. How many people can you, can you get to join your mob? Right. I mean, that that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Your constituency
0: or your, your,
1: right. Yeah. Um, but you know, over on the right, uh, you've got the phenomenon of Trumpism,
0: yeah, uh,
1: and and so much that, that has gone along with that, uh, especially over the last year, uh, with the whole um, you know sort of conspiracy theory about the you know stealing the election and mm-hmm. uh, and the whole QAnon
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, conspiracy theory, and um, you know you you again have. A group of people with with radically different moral sensibilities mm-hmm. than the than the woke, yeah. um, who are convinced that they are in possession of the truth, including the moral truth right. about certain matters, right. and they are not going to stand for the way other people are disregarding right. that truth. Right. And and they've got, they went as far as, you know, storming the the capital of. You know the U.S. Capitol building, right. um, and I,
0: so... you know as listening to you to sort of describe what are often regarded as extremes, and and often um, I think rightly regarded as extremes, but then you do have sort of shades away from that extreme uh, or those those sort of poles, mm-hmm. and and those people who perhaps would never storm the Capitol or wouldn't go to the extent of trying to form a, a mob, but, Oh, they might join it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. they, they feel that sense of moral, um, responsibility. Let's call it responsibility Mm -hmm. in maybe not to the same extent as the, the two poles, but, there, there's, there's an, an ethos that's been created here. Yes. And, um, and it's, I think in America, increasingly difficult not to sort of be on one or the other side of it.
1: I think that's true. For, for those of us who try to hold some middle ground what ends up happening is you get attacked by both sides. There so you go. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of fun. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I've, I've, that, that's my own experience. I've, right. I've tried to, you know, on certain issues, I, I um, am more in alignment with one side and on others more in alignment with, with the other. And, uh, but, but in neither case, do I feel like the extreme views are correct. And then what ends up happening is you just take flack all around, um, but that's okay. I mean, if you take Jesus teaching seriously, you'll be prepared for this sort of thing. You'll be expecting it.
0: Yeah, right? um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So,
1: um, but but to get back to the idea of, you know, what what changed, right? I mean, Dallas is, is here finally at the end of this long process of thought and writing uh, toward the end of his life, you know, teaching this material and, in you know 2011, 2012, and the students are, are going. I don't think I see the problem. Mm-hmm. And and then I myself uh, had the uh, the pleasure of teaching a graduate seminar at a Canadian university a couple of years ago on the the disappearance of moral knowledge. Um, you know, it was we read a lot of that text mm-hmm. in addition to other things, and. Um, there were you know some of the students who were on board with it and others who were more skeptical um you know it has has Willard identified a real problem here Mm -hmm. and it it struck me at that point that well things have changed since Dallas Dallas started working on this project back in the late 90s um and one of the things that's changed is folks have gotten a lot more confident about what they perceive to be moral knowledge. Mm. And so now we're in a position where people may be less inclined to believe that moral knowledge has disappeared, even though it has. And in fact, these positions that we see developing on, on the left and the right are, I believe, explained as best explained as responses to the disappearance of moral Mm. knowledge. Mm. When, when you have this vacuum open up, you know, uh, there need to be answers to the questions about how to live human life. And if our authoritative institutions, which historically were responsible for, for presenting carefully formulated and well-reasoned views about how to live human life. Yeah. Uh, which stood a chance of being true yeah. and, and therefore being actual knowledge. When those institutions back away from that calling and say, we've got no answers for you, human beings are going to find answers elsewhere. Yeah. And they will often find answers uh, that are less well worked out, less credible, less well founded. Yeah. than the ones that that would have been produced had we had we taken the project of moral knowledge more seriously in the university, say, yeah, throughout the twentieth century. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because at the end of the day we've got to we've got to do something uh, right. and and we got problems. Right. Um, we're we're not okay just as we are, so you know if we need some help. And right. And people right. people are ready to step up and <laughs> help mm-hmm. us.
1: Well, yeah. And and sometimes the need for for action becomes desperate, genuinely yeah. desperate. Yeah. And you, you've got to do something. Yeah. And um, the only question is uh, what are you gonna do and on what basis? And, you know, getting back to some issues that we were talking about earlier, if you've got the wrong ideas in mind, when you strike out to do something, your actions will be wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you're even, even though you're intending to do good, you might actually end up doing more harm than good.
0: Yeah. You might end
1: up creating more problems than solving problems. Yeah. And I think, I think that's actually what's happening
0: right Right. now.
1: And it really... It it sort of emanates from well you know the concept of knowledge involves this idea not only of acquiring truth but acquiring truth on um, sort of a, a reasonable basis. I mean Dallas used to put it like this: that knowledge is the ability to represent something as it is on an appropriate basis of thought and or experience. Yeah. And what we have now are people who are are not willing or not able to attend to that demand that our claims to knowledge be based on an adequate basis or an appropriate basis of thought and experience. Yeah. So the the evidentiary basis, the rational basis of these views is is lacking, and that's why I, I think. They're better characterized as, as dogmatic systems of belief mm-hmm. rather than actual bodies of moral
0: knowledge. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Aaron, for being with us. Um, it's
1: my pleasure, Mike. Talking, it's been great.
0: Talking about this, um, don't go out and buy this book unless... <laughs> You're really interested in philosophy and the sorts of things we've been talking about at the end of this uh, podcast. Sorry for those of you who are just listening. I'm holding up the book, The Disappearance of Moral Knowledge. It's a tough book, um, but it's a good book if you're into that sort of thing. But um, Aaron, is there uh, any sort of parting word for us? Perhaps something that you've you always. I'd always like to tell your students.
1: Sure, yeah, um, it's not something I always say directly to the students, but but I do hope that all my students take this sensibility away from my classes, and it's it's something that uh, that I think uh, we we all took away from Dallas's classes as well, and and that is this idea that um, well, look, if if your behavior matters, then your beliefs matter. Hmm. And if your beliefs matter, then, then truth in ideas matter. Hmm. And if that matters, then we have a duty to try to make sure that we have the best, and most accurate beliefs that we can come by. And that means we've got to pay a lot of attention to the bases for our beliefs. And we have to do a lot of exploration and listening and fair-minded consideration of the different possibilities for belief that there are. And, and only once you've gone through all of that, and have come to a settled, well-founded opinion about what the truth is, are you in a position where you can present your views as knowledge.
0: Thanks, Aaron. My pleasure. Um, so we're at the end of this more podcast-like version of the conspiracy commentaries and i hope that aaron is not the last guest um hopefully we haven't intimidated anybody else that i was hoping to ask um, but do check back for this i'm gonna try to grab some people over here in europe and um and some some people that know uh knew dallas personally or worked with his books um well, all over, the, all over the world, people like Aaron. So uh, look into that. They'll be a bit longer than the normal ones. And um, yeah, thanks for liking this, subscribing. Uh, head on over to sanctus.institute to sign up for our newsletter. And um, yeah, if there are any questions you have upcoming here about the book, uh, let us know at info at um, or something if I can't answer it, then I don't know. we'll we'll write to Aaron and we'll see if he knows or somebody else. We'll We'll get them as a guest here. So anyway, uh, see you next time and until then. <laughs> manageable I'm not, in terms of time. Yeah, I'm not the biggest editor. Um, see look, this is still running. So good mm. sign. That's a good sign. Well,